Hey everybody, you're listening to localjobnetwork.com radio and this is You Do What? A podcast where we check out a variety of non-traditional jobs. Maybe they're a little different than the typical ones you're used to or maybe they're ones you haven't even heard of. Regardless, we're letting you know that there are opportunities to match your skills and passion to create a unique career. Now this episode focuses on the idea of being a scientific fire analyst, investigating fires to get as many accurate answers as possible. Determining the cause of a fire, evaluating artisan charges, those types of things are a couple of vital areas in this profession. Joining us from Florida is John Lentini, an experienced individual in this world and the owner of Scientific Fire Analysis. John, thanks for being on the show today. Sure. Happy to be here. And now, clearly, when we, we hear that name, see that name, that title, uh, I'm sure people get sort of a vision in their mind of what that might be like. But I guess how would you describe your job and, and just the idea of being a scientific fire analyst? I am uh, generally a reviewer of other people's work at this point in my career, hmm. having worked uh, 2,000 fire scenes. These days, I mostly give second opinions. So I get reports, I get photographs, I get testimony. And I review it and determine whether it passes the smell test. And then I go a little bit deeper if it doesn't pass the smell test, actually uh, get involved in, in the litigation. Uh, many times the litigation just, I don't, I don't see that I have a role. and I just let it go. <laughs> but if I, if I can see a role for myself, then I work on it. I also, there's times when I don't see any role for me as a, as a witness, but I, I am able to help attorneys understand the, the science of the case. Most attorneys became attorneys because they didn't like science. Hmm. And there's, there's so many scientific disciplines out there mm-hmm. that they don't understand. And, and it would be silly to expect them to understand them all. So that's my main job, is reviewing other people's work and educating attorneys. So with a lot of work that you're doing, I guess, what do you see as the, as the bigger purpose? I mean, are you trying to make sure that you know, people aren't getting... Uh, you know, taken to court or that they're not unjustly judged, whether it be an arson situation or insurance. Well, I mean, how does that all work together in terms of uh, what you feel the bigger purpose is? Well, the, the bigger purpose, um, the industry that uh, is fire investigation is generally set up to do two things. One is to find out if the fire was intentional. Mm-hmm. And the second is to find out if the insurance company can blame anybody else. Uh, bad product or a badly performed service. Okay, and so the, it's the insurance industry that that's really driving the train. Hmm. And when people get in disputes with their insurance companies, they hire lawyers, and the lawyers hire me. That makes sense. With is this something you initially thought you'd be getting into? Did you, what was sort of your career path, or what were your aspirations, at least early on, and and how you moved into this area, or if this was something you always you know sort of thought you'd be into? I had no clue I was going here. Okay. I uh, had a chemistry degree, uh, and in 1973, it was the year of the first oil embargo, uh, there weren't a lot of jobs for chemists, but there were jobs in state crime laboratories, hmm. forensic science laboratories, right. and I got one with the uh, the Georgia Crime Laboratory, and they had a number of different disciplines that they wanted to train me in. And when they showed me, um, for example, microscopic hair comparison, uh, I wasn't very good at it. And they said, well, maybe you'd like to try arson. <laughs> and I, they took me into a room uh, with uh, separating equipment. Back in those days, we boiled up uh, pieces of carpet and pieces of ash and then condensed it and looked for things like gasoline or kerosene mm-hmm. uh, in the samples. So that is a, a unique career path for getting into fire investigation. As a, as a chemist, I learned... Uh, you know, what the fire marshals were up to. They were my customers. 
they would bring me samples and I would test them. And usually I wouldn't find anything in the samples. Mm-hmm. And eventually I started going out to fire scenes with fire marshals and uh, learning what it was they did out there. And um, most people that are that are in the profession today started out as firefighters. Okay. Not as not as lab chemists. Sure. And most of them, unfortunately, don't possess uh, any formal scientific education. And they learned fire investigation from mentors who learned from mentors, and there was a lot of misinformation passed along. Sure. And uh, during my career, I've, I've had the opportunity to test some of the various pieces of conventional wisdom that fire investigators had, and I, I learned through testing and experimentation that much of that conventional wisdom was BS, bad science. <laughs> I like that. Now, you brought that up, so I, let's touch on that right away, the idea that there are these maybe still prevalent myths or misguided beliefs in terms of you know how something occurs or why this fire happened or where it started. What are some of those more common ones that you came across that maybe you dispelled or, or just different items that you thought were important to say, hey, this isn't exactly how it works. We've been going about this all wrong. I mean, are there certain ones that really stand out or are more common? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, for example, a very appealing notion that a fire that uh, involves gasoline is going to be burning at a higher temperature than a fire that just involves plastics and wood. Mm-hmm. It's just totally not true. The uh, factor that determines how hot a fire is is not what is burning, but how much air it has. And if it has, if it has a lot of air, it burns hot. If it doesn't have a lot of air, it doesn't burn hot. It'll burn smoky. And if you think about it, that makes sense. When a, when a blacksmith wants his forge to be hotter, he doesn't change the fuel. He blows on it. Sure. Uses the bellows. For some reason, that notion got lost amongst fire investigators, and, and it's it's only in the last ten years being rediscovered. So people are learning now that the, the lowest and deepest burning in a in a structure is not necessarily where it burned the longest, but where it had the best air supply. And so we we have learned that it's it's harder than we thought to figure out where a fire started. Yeah. We also had myths, you know, people would see melted copper and they say, oh, that's, that's too hot because they had this, this notion that uh, wood fires didn't get that hot. Well, they do. People used to look at things like crazed glass, little tiny spiderweb cracks in, in hmm. window glass, and say that indicates rapid heating. And that was written down in books right. all across the spectrum. I mean, the National Bureau of Standards wrote a book that said that crazed glass meant rapid heating. And I never believed that. And I tested it in a laboratory, and I can make glass craze uh, no matter how rapidly or slowly I heat it by spraying cold water on hot glass. So all of this was really just stuff that was passed down and just believed, and it wasn't really fully tested until, you know, really recent years? Well, it started getting tested in the in the 80s and 90s. Okay. My paper on crazed glass came out in 1991, so it's been 20 years. Sure. Most people don't believe that crazed glass means anything anymore. But there's still people that think they can look in a fully involved compartment and tell you where the fire started and how it started, and they are sadly mistaken sometimes. (laughs) Well, let's look at that a little bit. Uh, I know you said a lot of your work entails now kind of looking over other people's, uh, you know, their notes and what they've gone through. But just in general, can you walk us through maybe the process of what you do or what you would be looking for when you're examining a fire? Just maybe those little things that 
obviously you having all the inside knowledge and experience, the average person would, you know, maybe be interested in hearing about how you go about this whole process. Well, you, you start with a damage assessment. Look around the outside and see where the fire has come out the windows or come out the doors. And you try to understand the ventilation of the fire. You have to determine which rooms became fully involved. And you do that by examining the baseboards and seeing if they're all charred uniformly except where they're protected. Hmm. And you say, all right, this room became fully involved. And you pick all the rooms that became fully involved because any one of those could be where the fire started. And then you, you look for sequential data, evidence of movement from one place to another, or evidence that only one of, if you have four rooms and they're all fully involved, but only one of them shows any damage on the electrical system, then you might conclude that there was still power on the house when that room burned. Mm -hmm. But by the time the fire got to the other rooms, there wasn't any power, probably because the uh, either the wires had burned off or some fireman had pulled the meter out and disconnected the power to the house. So if you know there's fire in, in room number one, and electrical activity in room number one and none elsewhere, right. then you can focus your attention on room number one because that burned first. You also look to things like video cameras, and those are, those are ubiquitous now. Right. Eyewitness statements. Uh, a lot of times people you know, can tell you where they saw the fire burning. It used to be that, that fire investigators had very much confidence in their ability to read fire patterns. But the more work that is done day by day, the less confidence those who are paying attention have in fire investigators' abilities, simply because it's so confusing. Hmm. Would, you, would you say that's maybe the most challenging aspect, is trying to figure out, maybe separate the, the facts from maybe the myths or the ideas or the confidence you have in knowing, well, I've done this, this many amount of fire investigations, I know this is how generally a fire works. What would you point to as being the the biggest challenge when you're trying to really get all this data and then evaluate what's going on? Well, the biggest challenge is keeping an open mind hmm. until you have got all the facts in. But, you know, there are times when you've got to, you know, just step back and say, you know what, I know that it started in this room, but I really can't say any more than that. Because once a fire has gone to full room involvement for three or four minutes, the fire patterns are all going to look alike in that room, no matter where the fire started. Sure. Fire patterns are going to be uh, influenced so much by ventilation that it's going to be very hard to figure out where the fire really started. So what you do at that point is you've got to look at every potential ignition source in the room. Okay, if there's a computer in the room, you've got to look at all the parts of the computer. You've got to look at the, the television. You've got to look at the, the lamps, the electrical system, any heating devices. You have to look at it all and you know, see whether any of those things show any evidence of having caused a fire. The hardest thing to do is to figure out where the fire started. Usually, if you figure out where the fire started, the cause will be right there looking at you. Mm -hmm. You know, with, with respect to arson fires, there's, there's a fair number of them. But most of the ones that I've seen were not very subtle. I went in, <laughs> I shovel off the floor, and I pick up the carpet, and it smells like gasoline. Mm -hmm. you know, it's just it's not very subtle. So right. it, at least the, the stupid arsonists get caught <laughs> if, if the fire investigator does their job Right. Now, there's some fire investigators that just didn't, a shovel doesn't seem to fit their hand very well. And that's one thing you just got to get over is uh, it involves physically demanding work mm -hmm. just to be able to gather the data that you then analyze, which is mentally demanding. 
So it's very hard. And that's one reason that you find that this business is dominated by men. Far over 90% of the people that do fire investigations are men. And, you know, it's not saying it's man's work. Uh, my, my son once asked his mother which one of us was smarter. And she said to him, uh, you don't see me shoveling out fires. <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. <laughs> yeah. So, but these days, you know, if somebody wants to get into this business, really my recommendation would be to go get yourself an undergraduate engineering degree in fire protection engineering. Hmm. And you can do fire investigations on the side. That fire investigation doesn't pay very well until you manage to get to the top of the, the profession. Public sector fire investigators, you know, they might start in the 40s, maybe 50s. There's, there's, there's just a lot of jobs that they don't pay enough to, to pay off your student loans. Right. And I, I do appreciate that, I mean, bit of insight there. And obviously, we would have gotten to that at some point as well. The idea that it, it's not necessarily a, a full-blown industry that someone should jump into, uh, you know, right away, but it's something that you feel you can kind of work your way doing other things and that might be an opportunity for you down the road? Yeah, well, you know, fire protection engineering pays pretty well. Yeah, I can imagine. Anytime it says engineering, it's probably going to pay pretty well. Yeah, but, it requ- you know, it requires a bachelor's degree at the very least, and, mm-hmm. then, and then at some time apprenticing with an engineer to get your PE. But that, that would be the route to get into fire investigation, and, right. and you can get right, come into the upper levels of the business. Sure. Now, people that work their way up from, you know, extinguishment, they can do it, but they need to go and get the scientific training so that they'll understand what it is they're learning when they learn fire investigation. You know, you can go and take courses and go to seminars, but if you don't have the basic scientific training, it's going to be hard to understand what you're, what you're learning. Right. You know, if, if you've got somebody who is a, uh, an incompetent plumber, you're going to figure that out pretty quick because the pipes are going to leak. Sure. And if you've got an incompetent surgeon, people are going to die. And an incompetent boat pilot's going to run his boat aground. But an incompetent fire investigator, nobody's going to know. Hmm. And this is true of this is true of all forensic sciences. People that just go back and they render opinions about historical events. Um, if somebody is not competent in that, but they're rendering opinions very confidently, uh, there's, there's no way to tell, you know, without without looking very deeply. And that's that's what I do now. And that was one thing I was going to ask about is the idea of testifying and, and people calling someone like you as a, as a witness. I mean, is this, is that accepted? Do people take that, you know, with a grain of salt that, as you said, there could be incompetence being involved. It's just someone's opinion. They may not have any necessary facts that they can back it up with. What is that role like? Is that something that you see as, as being important? Do you think it's overblown? What's your take on the, the testifying side of things? Well, you know, I, I testify a lot in, in conference rooms, okay. uh, way more in conference rooms than in courtrooms. Sure. But there's there's a lot of you know, bad testimony going on hmm. in fire investigation, and I, I see it just about every day. Do you think that, I mean, is it because one side's just trying to, trying to lead that uh, investigator that way? Is it because they honestly yeah. just, okay. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's people out there that think it's their job to find arson, hmm. and they'll, they, they wouldn't know an accidental fire if it bit them on the butt. I call those people hacks, and there are unfortunately a lot of them out there. So if you have a fire in your home and you know you, you report it to the insurance company, it's all going to be the luck of the draw on hmm. who they who they hire for a uh, fire investigator. And sometimes they they intentionally hire hacks because they work cheap and because they find arson all the time, and that that allows the insurance company to keep their money and you know 
drag the thing out. And it also allows their lawyers to write them big bills. <laughs> so, you know, the whole industry, defending insurance companies against arson. and You know, I know people that, you know, three, three out of four of their cases are bogus. Hmm. But they, they continue on. Right. So, you know, you've got to be ready to testify 100% of the time once you uh, do a fire investigation and render an opinion. You've got to be ready to sit across a table from somebody that doesn't want to believe you and answer hard questions. You've got to be ready to go into the courtroom and answer hard questions. So it, it, it's important to be ready for that. But there's a lot of fire investigators that testify uh, once or twice a year at the most. Okay. doesn't come up. Right. And a lot of times, you know, when I used to do fires on a regular basis, I'd go out, I'd discover the gasoline in the living room, and the insurance company would say, hey, you know, Mrs. Jones, we found gasoline in your living room, and you don't have an explanation for that. We're not going to pay you. And then that would be the end of it. She'd just go away. Wow. When you talk about that side of things, when you're doing your job, do you feel, is there pressure put on uh, someone like, like yourself in that position whether, I don't know what kind of intimidating tactics there would be, but I mean, is there a lot of that that you feel goes on that, not necessarily incompetence, but just the fact that maybe someone's hand-in-hand working for someone, essentially. Do you see that happening a lot? I see it happening some. I mean, if if somebody pushes me that way, I just tell them, you you need to find another boy. Hmm. I'm I'm, I'm not the person you're looking for. But um, insurance companies, if they don't know the cause of the fire, and they hire the fire investigator, and too many times he tells them, I don't know what the cause is. Right. Well, then they'll go and hire somebody else because they're going to shell out anywhere from 1000 to $4,000 to investigate the fire loss. They're starting out not knowing the cause. If they end up not knowing the cause, they, they sometimes don't get that undetermined is, is the only answer that's available. Uh, if you have a house out in the country and it turns to a pile of white powder six inches deep, it's going to be pretty hard to figure that one out. Sure. Obviously, we've talked on a number of different areas, and we've kind of touched on uh, different aspects of what this profession might hold. But in general, if somebody was looking to get into this area, are there certain skills or a personality type that you really think fits best or is really necessary if you're going to be successful? Well, you need to know science and math. If you don't like science, find another line of work. Go into sales or marketing, creative writing. But you have to like science Mm -hmm. in order to do this work. And you have to be able to tolerate lawyers. Oh. You have to be able to tolerate skeptics. That's an interesting one. I, I'm not, how, do you, how do you determine if you're able to, to handle that side of things? Well, you'll know after a while. People, people are naturally skeptical. True. In this line of work, anyways. After not too long, you're going to run into me or somebody like me that's uh, questioning your work if you're not doing good work. And you need to be able to tolerate that. You need to be able to, you know, have me say, well, how do you explain the fact that you didn't look at the computer in this room where you think the fire started and mm-hmm. it was fully involved? And, you know, you just got to be prepared for that kind of question. Sure. What is it then that, for yourself? What did you love about investigating fires? What do you love about what you're doing now? I mean, what really does drive you? What, what allows you to keep doing this uh, as a profession? And, and it sounds like at least still enjoy what you do. Well, when I was working fire scenes every day, um, I worked 100 to 150 fire scenes a year for the better part of 20 years. Finding the exact place where the fire started, that's, that's a great thing. Mm-hmm. And if you go into a, uh, a residence or a business that's burned and, and figuring out exactly what happened down to the nearest millimeter, that's a pretty satisfying thing because it's, it's daunting when you first pull up on the scene and you say, oh, geez, this, this is a mess. 
And uh, not a not a job would go by where some bystander didn't come up and say, "It's a mess, isn't it?" <laughs> <laughs> and I would say, "Yes." And I didn't always find the cause. Heck, about twenty percent of the time, I couldn't figure it out. And uh, you know, that's that's very uh, discouraging. Sure. And I, I would come home, and my my wife could tell by my mood whether I had figured it out or not. Right. So that was then. Nowadays, um, what drives me is getting to the right answer and shooting down bad science. Hmm. And and the most the most fulfilling thing that's happened to me in the last few years is actually walk watching innocent men and women leave the penitentiary because they didn't set the fire. Hmm. And I was able, uh, working with a team of, of lawyers and other scientists, to persuade the court system that an injustice had taken place and these people can get out. You had one uh, in Wisconsin not too long ago, uh, a guy named Joseph Awe had a bar in, uh, uh, I forget the name of the town, but he uh, he served three years and, and was let out. Okay. Uh, because because he didn't he didn't set the fire, hmm. and you know it's just a, it's a very warm feeling to be able to you know, save someone's life like that. And that's definitely a part that I think um, you know for those listening, and you bring that side. It just means more when it comes to that side of things as opposed to just hey, this is what happened. I found the spot, but to take it to that next level of actually you know, helping someone's life, basically, and then you said finding them innocent of, of any wrongdoing. I, I can't imagine. Is there anything you've ever done that could compare to the feeling of helping that person out or seeing them go free because no, no, of that, the work you did? That's just about the top. Yeah. That's just about the top. I mean, I have helped get uh, some bad products off the market. I've helped defend manufacturers who were unfairly blamed for uh, setting fires that really weren't their fault. That kind of work is, you know, it's gratifying. Um, it's it's all about money uh, at its at the bottom, but it's gratifying work. If if you've got a a manufacturer who's, who's selling bad products and is causing a lot of fires mm-hmm. to uh, get his attention, the way the way you do that, unfortunately, you know, you get them to, to write large checks. <laughs> but that that does get their attention. It, it focuses their mind. Sure. So you know, being involved in those kind of cases is uh, is also gratifying. With that, we are going to wrap things up on this edition of You Do What and our glimpse into the world of fire analysis, fire investigations. Our expert on the field today has been John Lentini, the owner of Scientific Fire Analysis, LLC, and you can find info there at firescientist.com. Thanks again, John, for lending us your perspective today. We do appreciate it. My pleasure. Of course, we also want to hear from you, the listeners, as well. Find out what other jobs you'd like to learn about. Just send an email to ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com. Thanks again for checking into LJN Radio. I'm your host, Tim Muma. We'll talk to you later.